scripture reading today is from Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, so glad you're here today. Welcome. We're continuing in this fall series that we're calling He Told Stories, looking at various parables that Jesus taught in Matthew's gospel. This past summer, uh, my family and I had a, a really great opportunity and privilege of spending a week on the beach. We, we really enjoyed doing that. And uh, during our time on the beach, we rented uh, an Airbnb, which has changed the travel experience, has it not, in pretty profound ways. I love Airbnb. Uh, and in my experience with these rental homes, you, you walk into the home that you've rented, and usually there's some sort of binder with, with laminated pages that gives directions and instructions on the expectations for the use of the home while you're there, right? And so in our beachfront house, uh, Airbnb, we, we're, we're really careful to take good care of the place. We took our shoes off before we walked in so we didn't get sand everywhere. We didn't drink red wine or or have chocolate on the couches. We we washed the sheets and the towels before we left, etc., etc., etc. Why? I bet that's the way you treat Airbnbs when you stay there. And the reason is because we're tenants. We're renters. We're not the owners of this home. And and we knew that we were privileged to be able to use someone else's place that just so happened to have a beach view from the back patio. It was, it was a blast, but that experience taught my family. And I bet that if you stayed in an Airbnb, those experiences have taught you that there's a difference between being an owner and a renter. 
There's a difference between being an owner and a tenant. Tenants should treat the owner's property with honor and with respect. That's not what we see in this story, is it? We see the opposite of what we would naturally expect, which Jesus so commonly does in his wonderful storytelling. Jesus does this because he wants us to draw the obvious conclusion from the story in order to teach us, in order to teach you and me this morning. This is the parable of the tenants. This parable is the second of three parables in a row that Jesus tells in Matthew 21 and 22 that are focused primarily on the people of Israel and Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ. The first is the parable of the two sons. The third is the parable of the wedding feast, which Will taught on last Sunday. Uh, uh, These are all parables of of judgment, really. They're, They're parables that are intended as loving warnings, They're intended as loving warnings from God to us. And and I just want to encourage you to, as you read and hear the scriptures, have a full view of who Jesus really is. We like to cast Jesus in our own images or just think about the parts of Jesus that are most naturally appealing to us. Jesus is gentle and loving and kind. And at the same time, Jesus can speak of hell and judgment. That's the full Jesus. That's the real Jesus. That's the Jesus that's here right now and wants to meet with you and speak with you. Jesus tells this story in the last week of his life. He's entered into the city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He's cleansed out the temple. He's cursed the fig tree. These are stories that if you know your Bible, you might be familiar with. And he tells this story that Jonathan read for us in reference to the Jewish leaders of his day. Verse 45 makes that clear. Jesus tells them this parable because these leaders, these scribes and PhDs in the Bible and pastors and preachers, they had rejected God's messengers and they were about to reject God's own son. And Jesus tells us that God is going to take the kingdom away from them and give it to another people, a people that will produce its fruit. So listen, I want you to hear today that Jesus speaks to you and to me by his word, through his spirit. He's asking you not to look at this parable and think, oh, those Pharisees, they're just at it again, missing Jesus. No, every parable that Jesus tells even parables of judgment are, they're intended as mirrors, as mirrors for you to use to look at your own life, not the life of your spouse, not the life of your neighbor who bothers you, not the life of your children or your parents, your life. Jesus is speaking to you, especially this morning, if you consider yourself a Christian person, a religious person, This parable is relevant for you. Jesus is inviting you to hear him and to turn to him in repentance and in faith. He's inviting you to see yourself rightly and to embrace the life that he offers you. So listen to Jesus's voice. Listen to Jesus's voice today. Let me show you three things as we work through this parable. First, the character of God. This parable teaches us about the character of God. Part of what makes the story that Jesus tells so patently obvious is the massive contrast that he presents between the generosity of the landowner on the one hand and the absurd wickedness of the tenants on the other hand. The landowner, of course, represents God the Father. 
The tenants represent the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, and the son represents, of course, Jesus himself. So given this contrast, let me just point out what the story tells us about God's character. Two things specifically. First, this story teaches us about the kindness, the kindness of God. Look at verse 33. The master plants a vineyard, and and let's just stop there. He plants a vineyard. That's a good thing. Uh, And he employs tenants to work the field and produce fruit and to share in its bounty. A vineyard was a, a key image in the Jewish scriptures, in what we now call the Old Testament. It's an image that these people Jesus is speaking to would have no doubt understood. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, Israel itself is referred to as a vineyard. Let me read you a couple of examples. Read with me. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah says this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it, to yield grapes. Why did it yield wild grapes? Another example from Psalm 80. The psalmist says of God, you brought a vine, a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. God gave Israel a vineyard. God made Israel to be a vineyard. He set Israel up for success. He gave her good land. You need good land to plant a fruitful vineyard. Where I grew up in the panhandle of Texas, the chances of you planting a fruitful vineyard are, I think, 0.0%. There's no way, given the aridity of the climate and the lack of fertility of the soil, that you're going to plant a vineyard in West Texas. You could plant a vineyard here in the central part of our state, in the hill country. You can drive along 290 going west towards Fredericksburg out of Austin and and pass all kinds of vineyards, and they're okay. I mean, let's be honest. They're okay at best. Where you can really plant a vineyard, though, is in the Napa Valley. That's where vineyards thrive. The point of this story is that God gave Israel the Napa Valley. And then asked them to make wine. This landlord, he's supremely kind. He provided, if you look at the verse, in every way for the tenants. He gives them a well-cared-for vineyard that was productive. And, And of course, Jesus is saying that's how God has treated Israel. That's how God has treated his people. He's been kind to them. He's loved them immeasurably. He's chosen in his sovereign grace to show them favor above all the other peoples of the earth, not because they deserved it, not because they were worthy of it, but because that's simply who God is. And the Holy Spirit says through this text that that's how God has been with us as well, isn't it? God is not a cruel taskmaster. God has blessed us so that we might steward his favor as a tenant of his blessing. And if God has been this kind, Jesus is saying we ought to be humbly bearing fruit. God is kind. 
The second thing we learn about his character from this story is that he is patient. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The landowner sent his first servants there in verse 34 to get his fruit. But what do the tenants do? They beat up the first guy. Then they stone the second servant. And then they, they take it a step further. They kill the guy. They murder a third servant. And so the landowner comes and wipes them all out with his army. End of story. Let's pray. That's not what he does. That's what I would have done. If I were a landlord, that's probably what most rational people who want to protect their vineyard investment would have done. But what this landowner does is send more servants. And they treat them even worse than the first ones, verse 36. And finally, he sends his son. They'll respect my son, verse 37. Who in the world does that? No one does this. What, in, what normal landowner will send his son after they've murdered multiple servants? No, a normal landowner sends his army just after the first servant is beaten and puts those tenants to an end. But this landowner continues to withhold acting in judgment. He continues to send servants and finally he sends his son. Now, of course, this represents God's great patience with his people throughout their history. And it represents God's great patience with each one of us right now. The servants represent God's prophets, God's messengers. So much of the Old Testament is God repeatedly pleading with his people to turn away from idols, to turn to him in faith. The very end of the Jewish Old Testament is 2 Chronicles. And at the end of 2 Chronicles, sort of as a, a capsulating summary of the whole Old Testament, we read this, 2 Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent persistently to them his messengers because he had compassion on the people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. God pleads with his people. He pleads with them to trust him, to worship him because he's delivered them out of Egypt. He does this through the prophets. And what happened to the prophets? You guys know what happened to the prophets? Jeremiah wrote probably the longest book in the Old Testament other than the Psalms. When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, what he said is, hey, Jeremiah, I want you to go spend your life preaching. And oh, by the way, no one's ever going to listen to any of your sermons. In fact, they're going to hate you. And repeatedly after Jeremiah would preach, he would get beaten up. I mean, I've preached a few duds in my day. No one's ever beaten me up to this point. Don't try. I'll fight back. It might not go well, but I would fight back. Jeremiah got beaten up. Micah punched in the face. Have you ever been punched in the face? He got punched in the face after declaring God's word. Elijah driven into exile and had to live in a cave for years. Habakkuk and Zechariah were both stoned to death. Isaiah was cut in half. But God keeps sending. God keeps calling. God keeps pursuing. God is patient. How patient has God been with us? If we're honest, friends, if we're honest with ourselves spiritually, we consistently reject God's word and God's commands even when we claim to believe them. We consistently worship money or beauty or security. 
when God asks us to worship him. We consistently treat other image bearers with vindictiveness and with thoughtlessness when God asks us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And what does God do? He keeps speaking to us. He keeps ministering to us. He keeps meeting us and helping us and taking care of us. Oh, how patient is God? How patient is he? The scriptures tell us elsewhere that his patience is intended to lend us and to lead us to repentance. When you have a God with this kind of character, who is this kind and who is this patient, it should draw us to him in faith instead of cause us to shrink away from him in fear. Even when we know we've failed because God promises to graciously receive wayward sinners. That is who he is, a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His character is clear in this story. The second thing that's clear is the sinfulness of man. We've already seen how wicked the tenants are. They're insolent. They're vengeful. They're murderous. I mean, this is a rough picture. It's a rough picture of what humans are like and of what humans are capable of. Sin is a monster. Sin is a monster that captures us all. And the behavior of these tenants is all the more condemnable because the tenants, they don't just represent random people. These tenants represent the religious leaders of Israel, the pastors and the preachers of the day. Scholar Frederick Bruner puts it like this. Listen to him. He says, what heightens the enormity of the sin of the tenants is that humanity's most privileged representatives, the leaders of the people of God themselves, are the ones who most culpably resist God's love. There's almost nothing more that needs to be said about the sinfulness of man. It's readily apparent here, but I want to point out one more thing, and that's this. The first thing I noticed this week when I reread this parable on Tuesday morning was how crazy these tenants are. Did you you see that as it was read? The insanity and and the foolishness of sin is on display here. Think about it with me. They they murder multiple messengers and and then they see the son of the landowner coming and, and they draw this conclusion. Verse 38, if we kill him, we'll get the inheritance. That is not a rational conclusion to draw. That is not a logical conclusion. Who in their right mind, who in their right mind would possibly believe that they're going to get away with such a harebrained scheme? Why would they possibly think that the landowner is just going to passively sit by and watch all this happen, especially when they kill his son? And that's just the point. Sin is insanity. Sin is absolutely crazy. Why? Because sin whispers in all of our ears, you are an owner when you're just a tenant. Sin tells us that our freedom lies in our own self-determination. Sin tells us that we can only be happy if we're calling the shots. Sin tells us that we can do whatever we want, that we can be whomever we want, that we can do it our way, a la Frank Sinatra, and no one can stop us. And you know what else sin does? Sin makes us forget. Sin blinds us to its consequences. 
My friend Ross Lester, who's a pastor in Austin, put it this way. Sin erases our memories of the hundreds and hundreds of times it has not, in fact, worked out for us to pursue our own ways. Doesn't sin work like that in our lives? Sin deceives us into thinking that we are owners of the vineyard and not tenants. Sin deceives us into thinking that we're masters of our domain and of our resources and not just stewards of what is all really God's. Sin deceptively twists each of us into something ugly. Just like the ring twisted Gollum. It's been a while. It's been a while since we've camped out with my friend J.R.R. Tolkien, but we're going there today. We're going there today. You're welcome. Gollum discovered the ring of power, as you know, if you've read his books. And if you haven't, need I say more? Go read the books. Uh, And the ring twists Gollum, doesn't it? By deceiving him into thinking that he's the owner. That he, in fact, is the Lord of the Rings. When there's only one Lord of the Rings, as Gandalf reminds us. It twists him so that he'll do anything to have the ring. And how does it end? Spoiler alert, right? 60-year-old book, guys, at least. Spoiler alert, uh, he gets what he wants, the ring, as he plummets into the cracks of the fiery mountain. Sin does this to all of us. That's what this parable shows. And Jesus calls us by his spirit to see it, to see it in our lives, and to listen to his warnings about just the craziness of sin. And think about it. Has sexual immorality ever really improved your life? Men, when you look at pornography and then you feel shame and you feel the need to hide it from your spouse and everyone else, does that really make your life better? No, but sin tells us that it will. Does buying every new trinket and toy that you want or pursuing every new experience that you think will make you happy really ever work? No, It's just greed, collecting more and more stuff that we fill our lives with and our hearts still feel empty. Sin tells us that the next new thing or the next new experience will finally do it, but it never will. Listen, friends, does losing your temper and and screaming or pouting or berating someone really make your relationships healthier? Does it really make your life more joyful? No. But sin deceives us. It makes us forget what these patterns in our lives really forge. And it makes us think that this is the way forward. Sin has that kind of power. But thanks be to God that he does not leave us in bondage to sin. He has a plan to overcome the sinfulness of man and the insanity of sin. That's what the parable tells us lastly, the plan of God. The punchline of the parable is there in verse 41, in which Jesus, in a moment of really steep irony, I hope you get the irony, he gets the religious leaders to conclude the parable for him, to say themselves that they would act in judgment, right? We would go and destroy those wicked tenants. And then Jesus says, haven't you ever read your Bibles? Haven't you ever read your Bible to a bunch of Bible PhDs who likely have the entire Old Testament memorized? And then he quotes Psalm 118, which is one of the most quoted psalms in all the New Testament. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, what's going on here? Well, in the original context of Psalm 118, stick with me, the cornerstone is David who wrote this psalm. And Jesus's audience would have considered themselves to be David's descendants, which they literally were. And the true cornerstones, the true foundations of Israel and of God's kingdom. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You've rejected the cornerstone. I'm the cornerstone. And you, the people that should have recognized me above anyone else, are going to kill me instead of recognize me. So he continues in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people, literally the Gentiles, producing its fruits. So what's the point? Jesus is saying here that God knew all along. God knew all along how the tenants, how the religious people of Jesus's day would treat his servants. And God knew all along exactly what they were going to do with his son. God knew all along that they would, in fact, kill the son. This parable is predictive. Jesus is four or five days away from the cross here, remember. Jesus is saying, the way that God is going to bring redemption, the way that God is going to rescue broken and lost sinners, the way that God is going to overcome the evil of men and women is by using our own evil against evil. By using our own evil to accomplish the salvation of the world. That's the plan of God. He's going to use the rejection of Jesus. The murder of Jesus. To make Jesus the cornerstone. The foundation of the restoration of all things. And more than that. God is going to open the floodgates of his kingdom. To those who had not yet experienced it. To the nations of the world to all people, to the Gentiles, to you and to me sitting in San Antonio, Texas in 2021. That's God's plan. A bit later in the New Testament, the apostle Peter is preaching a sermon and he makes this point again when it's clearer because it's on the other side of the resurrection. Listen to what Peter says to the Jewish peoples in Acts chapter two on Pentecost. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up and listen, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The plan of God is to use man's sin to use the worst thing that has ever happened, the death of Jesus Christ, the death of his sinless son, to end sin once and for all and to save sinners like me. So so we have to conclude with the way the parable concludes. Jesus is asking, how are you going to live moving forward? Will you pretend that you're the owner of your life? Will you pretend that you're the owner of your life like these tenants did and get crushed by God's kingdom and judgment, which is what verse 44 teaches? Or will you recognize the kindness and the patience of God, go to him for forgiveness and live as a beloved tenant serving in his field? That's the question Jesus asks. And he invites you today 
to turn from your wickedness, to turn from your failings, to turn from your own sin, to see them for just how evil they are, and to look to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, who bled and died for you in his great love, and to build your life on him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.